Welcome to the New Legal Realism Podcast. The New Legal Realism Project promotes rigorous and genuinely interdisciplinary scholarship on law and action. Today we'll hear from Professor Shaheen Talesh, who is a professor at UC Irvine School of Law. He also has joint appointments in sociology and criminology, law and society, and is currently the director of the Law and Graduate Studies program at UCI. Professor Talesh is an interdisciplinary scholar whose works span law, sociology, and political science. His research interests include the empirical study of law and business organizations, dispute resolution, consumer protection, insurance, and the relationship between law and social inequality. His scholarship has appeared in multiple law and peer-reviewed social science journals, including the Law and Society Review, and he has won multiple awards in sociology, political science, and law and society. To get started, would you mind describing your research? I study law and inequality and law and social change. Uh, in particular, I study how private organizations respond to legal regulations and what effect these responses have on consumer and civil rights in terms of procedural fairness and substantive justice. So uh, to unpack that a little bit, typically, um, we think of law as very top down coming from courts. Uh, issuing decisions, legislators issuing laws and administrative agencies issuing regulations that diffuse into society and influence individuals and organizations within society. And I sort of counter that model uh, and write from law from the bottom up, how actually private organizations are often shaping the content and meaning of laws designed to regulate them. So, you know, I've looked at this in the context of um, consumer protection laws, which sometimes have been uh, initially quite powerful. And then um, in response to those laws, organizations create policies and procedures that eventually bubble up into legislation and weaken those laws. Um, and so I've done a variety of um, empirical studies in the consumer protection context, the consumer lemon law context to lay out a theoretical framework um, and then more recently in sort of the last five to seven years, I've, I've started to pivot more into looking at this uh, issue uh, in the insurance context. And in particular, looking at the role that um, intermediaries play between sort of law uh, published by public legal institutions and organizations tasked with implementing these laws and the role that insurance companies play as intermediaries and mediating what law means among employers, for example, in the employment practice liability insurance context, or more recently looking at uh, cybersecurity and privacy laws and the role that insurance companies play. So, you know, my work in some sense uh, intersects both public law and private law, which is a little unique uh, since often, at least in the legal academy, you sort of are in one sandbox or the other. Uh, and one way to think about my work more broadly is, you know, I look at how organizations both influence public legal institutions, but also how law lives within private organizations, and most importantly, how the two interact. And I think that's where I think things get interesting. So that's that's sort of a broad picture of what I uh, study. I really thought that your article on lemon law statutes was super interesting, and especially in terms of the impact that it has on on, on people, like this repeat player advantage. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that, because I think it's a really good example. Sure, uh, happy to. So, um, as I said, you know, I'm looking at uh, 
you know, how private organizations shape the content and meaning of laws. And so I've spent a lot of time uh, looking at sort of how this happens with regard to legislation and regulation. So in California, and actually across the United States, there were um, consumer lemon laws or automobile lemon laws that were created in the 1970s and 80s, uh, right? So, you know, you have uh, uh, warranties issued, manufacturers issue warranties, automobile companies issue warranties. And um, in California, uh, there was a powerful statute that was passed that afforded consumers, um, if your car was a lemon, the opportunity to seek a full refund or replacement car, attorney's fees, and civil penalties if you showed, you know, the man, you've been give, you gave the manufacturer a reasonable number of attempts to fix the problem. And so, um, in response to that, uh, you know, manufacturers didn't resist or avoid the law. They uh, they responded, and how they responded is by um, creating policy uh, dispute resolution structures, internal grievance uh, procedures, first internally within Ford, GM, Chrysler, some of the, the Japanese manu car manufacturers. And then eventually they um, uh, farmed them out to external third party organizations to run to gain more legitimacy. Um, and they diffused, they spread, they became um, the norm among all sort of manufacturers had them and they, they lobbied and, and, and um, framed them in terms of being efficient and faster to get relief. Uh, as opposed to going into the court system, right? So you have your public right to go to the court and seek a full refund, but now manufacturers have these dispute resolution processes in place, first internally, then externally. Um, and so I, will, I study sort of how this happened, how, because eventually these internal grievance processes uh, became a part of the uh, consumer lemon law. Uh, such that now, um, in order to claim some of your rights in court, you have to use one of these uh, private arbitration programs set up um, in advance of going to court. And in these forums, uh, you have less rights and remedies. You don't have the opportunity to seek attorney's fees or civil penalties. And as opposed to uh, the remedy being a full refund of your car or a replacement car, um, now the arbitrator can award, you know, another repair attempt or some intermediate award. And so um, I looked at sort of how this happened. I theorized it, which I, I'm hoping we can talk about um, a little later, you know, the theoretical approach, but sort of showed how this happened. And so what started out as a powerful consumer protection law uh, eventually got weakened um, once these dispute resolution structures got adopted into law because it turns out consumers win um, not, not very often. Uh, they win maybe one third of the time a full refund or replacement. Um, and so I looked at sort of how legislatively this happened. I then compared it because all 50 states have a private program. 13 states also have a state run arbitration program, okay, where it's more of a public forum. Um, and empirically, I looked at sort of legislatively how it is we ended up with two states with two different models. I studied California and Vermont. Uh, and then I went and actually participated uh, and explored how the, these dispute resolution processes train their arbitrators. And so I sort of observed the training processes, interviewed the people involved. I collected data on outcomes, and then I watched hearings. So it's like multi-level analysis, right? Legislative history to see how this came about, then ethnographic, and interviews 
ethnographic uh, research and participant observation and interviews on how they train the arbitrators to, to adjudicate these disputes, then observing the actual hearings and then looking at outcomes. And so what the big finding essentially was is that um, you know institutional design or how you set up the arbitration forum can really impact um, consumer inequality because in the Vermont state-run arbitration forum, it's a public forum uh, where there are there is three citizens that sit three citizens that sit on the board with an automotive dealer and a technical expert. Whereas in the California model, it's a very privatized model where a private organization runs the arbitration forum that is funded by the automobile manufacturers. So design really matters. The role of the fact finder really matters. Who sits on the arbitration panel really matters. And so I was able to sort of lay out a series of variables um, about how institutional design uh, really can shape or inhibit uh, consumer inequality. Yeah, super interesting. And I, I wanted to clarify the laws in both of these states are very similar, right? The Lemon laws. So it's really the point is that the way that these are playing out on the ground is so different. Yeah, despite having similar lemon laws on the books or in statutes, the law in action is really different based on the way consumer and business values are incorporated into the dispute resolution process. In California, the private, the business values dominate the training and the conceptualization of what the lemon law means. Whereas in Vermont, there is a balance of consumer and business perspectives in the discussion and deliberation of the case. Can you talk a little bit about your methodological approach? Yeah. Um, so, you know, a lot of people who write about law and inequality and law and social change um, study, you know, employees' experiences, for example, in the harassment context, you know, harassed in an employment context, or uh, consumers or prisoners in a prison context, um, immigrants in immigration context. And they're studying the people who are experiencing inequality at various different levels and stages. I uh, actually, so, so I study what's, what, what I think Laura Nader referred to once as studying up. I study up. In other words, I study um, organizations and corporations where the inequality often is created, institutionalized, developed. Um, and so, you know, I'm often studying large, corporate organizations. And one big study was automobile manufacturers. Another, it's like I said, insurance companies. These are multi-million, multi-billion dollar companies, right? And so um, it's a challenge, right? Uh, because you're trying to access the hierarchy, if you will, and really explore how they engage law. So um, I use a variety of different uh, methodological approaches. One, I use uh, semi-structured interviews. Um, I do ethnographic research. Um, I do content analysis, historical content analysis often. Um, I do a little bit of quantitative work, though I'd say, you know, that's not my, my focus or specialty. It's more descriptive to set up the deep dive um, qualitative research. I've, I've tried to develop early on a, a thing called mobile ethnography, where typically traditional ethnography, you go and you immerse yourself in an environment for one, two, three months or a year, et cetera. And in studying uh, organizations at a field level analysis where you're looking at, let's say employers or manufacturers or insurance companies, they're sort of all over the country, right? And so the mobile ethnography is sort of moving through the field 
and setting up in different places and locations across the country um, uh, to observe the, the unit of analysis or the group that you're studying. So I also, you know, um, heavily rely on comparative cases. So I try to, I'm a big proponent. I talk to grad students all the time at UC Irvine um, about this, about uh, trying to compare different cases because I think that builds variation into your study. Um, and I think when you have variation in your study, you know, uh, if you're comparing two cases and there's variation that you're, that leads to interesting results, it leads to you to sort of articulate what's going on in a more um, flavorful way. Um, and so I, I often try to do that. So, so it gives you kind of an idea of the various methods that I use. So what are some of the theoretical deb debates that your research engages? I'm looking at organizations and I draw heavily from um, so organizational sociology and political science studies of, of uh, businesses and interest groups. So think of it like this. Political scientists do a wonderful job of looking at how businesses and interest groups influence law among public and legal institutions, courts or legislators. There's a lot of literature on lobbying and agenda setting and uh, in the regulation context, there's a big political science literature on capture, right? Organizational sociology, in particular, new institutional sociology looks at sort of how law, how norms and values and practices developed by organizations or a field of organizations like employers or manufacturers shape how organizations comply with law. So much more decentered or away from public legal institutions. And so, you know, uh, Lori Edelman developed a theory of called legal endogeneity, which she studies how sort of private organizations shape the content and meaning of judicial decisions. And I um, drew heavily from that and then brought in the political science perspective and sort of discuss how private organizations shape the content and meaning of legislation. And so I'm engaging in bringing together both literatures because what I show is that the norms, the values in this case, in the consumer um, automobile manufacturer context, the norms of manufacturers believing in dispute resolution in the value of private dispute resolution as efficient, as faster, as, as uh, more collaborative get institutionalized in the field among organizations. And then that shapes what they lobby for among public legal institutions. So if you can think about it, uh, drawing from Mark Galanter's, you know, haves and repeat players and one shotters, what my framework does is bring the two together by um, showing how the haves nowadays in the sort of 21st century create a private legal order right? They institutionalize their own dispute resolution system, and then they influence the public legal order. In other words, they lobby as to the value of the private dispute resolution system. It gets adopted into law, and then they can utilize and maintain that. And the important point here is it's not the public legal institutions that told the manufacturers to create these dispute resolution structures. No, it was in response to an ambiguous law the manufacturers created these structures, they became institutionalized, and then they lobbied the legislature as to the value of these processes and they got adopted into law. So law is very bottom up here. It, it looks top down when you read it, but it's actually bottom up. It's actually coming and emanating from the organizations or in this case, the organizational field. So, so I, I blend political science and organizational sociology 
Um, I've now, and, and then I, I look at the distributive effects of legal processes, which is a fancy way of sort of saying you draw heavily from the great work of Mark Galanter on looking at repeat players and one-shotters. And then now that I've pivoted uh, into insurance, I, I, I write a lot about uh, thinking about insurance as regulation and the conditions under which this works well and the conditions under which this doesn't work well. And so I've taken my the theoretical frame and I've, I've written an article called The New Institutional Theory of Insurance, where I sort of draw on um, a legal endogeneity that, uh, in the consumer protection context and import it into insurance and sort of see how it plays out in that context. Can you talk a bit about how you got involved in the new legal realism movement and how your research connects to it? Yeah, so, um, you know, honestly, I read a little bit about it in graduate school and I went to the jurisprudence social policy program at UC Berkeley and Stuart McCauley actually gave a, you know, they have a workshop series and he gave a, he gave a paper on new legal realism and you know, I read the paper, it was really interesting. And Stuart is a, you know, he's a dynamic person and, you know, a memorable, I know, I know his history with law and society. And so I started to think about law and society. I, I mean, I think about new legal realism in its relation to law and society and, and sort of thinking of it as a natural progression. Um, and so the more I, I, I thought about sort of new legal realism and its focus more on translation, on law schools, on lawyers, I realized it's a pretty good fit for what I was doing, right? As I've talked to you about my research, it's very interdisciplinary, right? I'm drawing on multiple theoretical frameworks. I use multiple methods, right? And I do what's called theoretically informed empirical research that's driven from a research question that's coming from theory, right? So um, I felt like it was a natural fit. Um, and so that natural fit has, has, I think, worked out really nicely. It's led to most recently um, an edited volume uh, that I co-edited with um, Elizabeth Mertz and Heinz Klug um, on uh, a research handbook on modern legal realism. You know, I think the framework for the book um, starts with the premise that the landscape of legal and social science scholarship has changed in the last 25 years. You know, empirical research, especially I think in the top 25 schools, is very much embedded in the legal academy. Doctrinal uh, work still obviously is, is very prevalent and normative frameworks are important, but there's been a real surge in empirical scholarship in the legal academy. So there's an appetite, I guess. Um, and increase in JD PhDs like myself in the legal academy. Um, and there's been a sort of two movements kind of playing out in um, law schools, the empirical legal studies movement and the NLR movement. And so, um, I think the book tries to uh, take a moment to demonstrate new legal realism's uh, continuation of the legal realist tradition. Um, so we look beyond uh, historical and national boundaries. Um, we provide a real contrast and distinction between NLR and empirical legal studies. So, um, you know, the book really tries to highlight what we think are the virtues of new legal realism vis-a-vis -vis, um, the strengths of empirical legal scholarship, because I do think there are differences between the two. Um, and the book actually tries to um, do something a little bit different in the sense that we take on particular um, topics in the book and show how new legal, legal realists approach them. So, 
you know, uh, there's a few chapters on policing. And, and I think we actually frame the section as legal realist scholarship meets current dilemmas. So we have a series of chapters on policing where we have scholars from different disciplines um, approaching issues of policing. We have some, uh, another set of chapters on immigration, right? Different scholars across a series of disciplines on how they um, use new, new legal realism to inform their, their understandings of immigration. Uh, legal education is another topic. International law, global standards, regime change is another sort of subcategory. And then of course, access to justice. Um, so the part one is really a history of, of legal realism, looking at sort of East Coast legal realism, European legal realism, uh, the lessons uh, from of new legal realism from Africa and Latin America. Part two looks at the legal realist scholarship and how it meets current dilemmas, the things I just mentioned. And then um, part three is nice in the sense that we also then go back to um, having a series of chapters called disciplinary perspectives, where we have invited um, academics from various disciplines, anthropology, sociology, psychology, in fact, Tom Tyler, um, history, uh, jurisprudence, um, and, and they offer their pers a disciplinary perspective on new legal realism. So um, we, we, we use this framework uh, in the book to try to highlight um, what we think are the contrasts to empirical legal studies approaches uh, and show that uh, we think the virtues of new legal realism are that it's multidisciplinary, it's open to mixed methods, and um, it's theoretically informed empirical research. And what I mean by that is <clears throat> theoretically informed empirical research is not just here's a big data set and here's some interesting findings. It's here's a research question. And here's a research question that is embedded in a long-standing theoretical debate. And here's a method or multi-methodological approach to answer that research question, right? That's theoretically informed empirical research. And I think, you know, that would be a, a real distinction, I think, from what I see with empirical legal scholarship, which is, um, you know, largely quantitative and, and at times, at times, um, you know, not producing research questions that are sort of derived from longstanding theoretical debates. So um, the, the book tries to highlight these things and it tries to uh, focus on the idea that we can use translation, legal translation between social science and law and how new legal realism can help in that endeavor. Well, perfect segue in bringing up translation. Um, my next question is, do you have any thoughts on how you can best translate your research to policy and programmatic changes out in the world? Yeah, so, you know, this is, a, I mean, this is one of those interesting questions, right? Because, <clears throat> you know, the, the old uh, saying is, you know, oh, you're an academic and yeah, you write in these journals and nobody reads these journals and, you know, you're not making an impact, right? <clears throat> and and so, you know, the way I, I come at that kind of debate is that, look, empirical research can and I think should shape and drive any normative solutions that we have to problems. So, you know, to the extent I have an opinion about, let's say, arbitration, it's derived from my empirical research that showed, right, that where I looked at not just a private arbitration system in California or a public arbitration system in Vermont, 
that showed that, look, the role of the fact finder really matters. If it's the fact finder is trained to be inquisitorial and ask lots of questions, that can help the one-shotter um, <clears throat> against the repeat player who knows, uh, you know, the arguments to make and the law, right? The training matters, the composition matters, right? And so <clears throat> I think if somebody were thinking about arbitration and arbitration reform, which has been debated uh, across many branches of government for the last 30 years, one would want to look to empirical research on, well, how does arbitration actually work and move away from normative arguments about whether arbitration is good or bad, but look at the research. And the research shows that, look, not all arbitration systems are the same. Design really matters. Training really matters. The role of the fact finder really matters. Some arbitration systems, like the one I show in Vermont, can actually preserve a fair process. Consumers win 55% of the time in Vermont, which is a pretty good rate, as opposed to in California, about 25% of the time in the consumer lemon law context. And so I think the point here is that um, <clears throat> I think empirical research here can, can shape policy debates. Um, I think, you know, with COVID-19 right now, playing out across the world. I think we're seeing this sort of debate bubble up, right? That sort of empirical research, science should drive our approach, right? And so I think, um, you know, thinking about my research or empirical research in general, I think uh, we would hope we could get this research in front of policymakers so that it can help shape the decision-making, right? So that it's not, it's less ideological and more driven by by what the research says about arbitration, what the research says about wearing masks, uh, what the research says about organizational grievance processes and whether they work or not, right? There's a lot of research in the employment context that suggests that you know a lot of these grievance processes don't work so well for employees. And so if we can get that research in front of courts, maybe they will defer less to them as they do in the employment context. If we can get that research in front of uh, legislatures and thinking about arbitration and arbitration reform, maybe, you know, uh, we can rethink the value and the virtues or vices of mandatory arbitration clauses, which is a big problem, right? And so, um, you know, I think it's a, it's a obviously an ongoing challenge, but I think, you know, the short answer to your question is I think empirical research should drive any policy debates or normative solutions. Um, and so the challenge is, of course, getting that research to the decision makers. Last question. How does your research and your interdisciplinary approach inform how you teach your law school classes? Yeah, so <clears throat> I guess, you know, if I'm going to talk the talk, I got to walk the walk, right? And do it in, 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 in how I teach, right? And so, so I think it's a fair question. Um, you know, I teach civil procedure, I teach insurance law, I teach a class called Interdisciplinary Perspectives on Law. Um, which obviously that class is it's an easy class because you're bringing in interdis interdisciplinary perspectives. But but let me take civil procedure, which is a very traditional, you know, it's a class virtually every law student is required to take across virtually every uh, law school in the United States. Um, and how I go about it is, you know, I say, look, I'm going to teach students the law and make sure they know the law and the, the, the rules and for civil procedure and the, the major cases and the major statutes. But I want them to know how the law matters, how it impacts society. So you're going to learn the law. And I tell them on the first day of class, you're going to learn the rules. You're going to learn the statutes. You're going to learn the important cases. 
but how you're also going to learn how it impacts people, how it impacts across race, gender, class, etc. Right. And so, um, for example, so then that begs the question, well, you know, how do you do this? Right. So um, when we get to the section on the class on the, the trial and the court system and alternative dispute resolution, I have them read experts excerpts of Mark Lanter's Why the Haves Come Out Ahead. So it, it sensitizes them to repeat players and one-shotters and different institutional positions and different institutional advantages that repeat players have over one-shotters. Um, I, when we cover, um, uh, there's a very dry, known as a dry topic in civil procedure as removal doctrine, right? Removal doctrine is basically the rules that allow um, a defendant to remove a case from state court to federal court. And there's a particular statute and a particular set of rules that allow, in some cases, a defendant to remove a case from state court to federal court. And there's also a set of rules that are statute on how to a defendant can transfer a case from one federal court to another. So, so April, you might be saying, oh, well, that sounds kind of boring, right? It's a series of rules or statutes. And I'd say, yeah, you know, it's not the most exciting statute. But here's how, so, so they learn the rules, but then here's how I uh, get the students to try to see how it matters is I have them read uh, an excerpt from an article that looks at the empirical data on removal and transfer, which shows that there is a removal effect that when defendants remove a case from state court to federal court, they win twice as often that when they transfer a case from one federal court to another, they win more often that there is what's called a forum transfer effect. And so then the students realize, wow, we just learned these, some might say boring rules, uh, but boy, they really have a big impact on who wins. And so the course is anchored around the idea that procedure impacts substance, right? That we're not just learning rules, but looking how the rules impact the outcome and who wins, right? Um, so that's like one example, or I'll give me a couple examples there. Uh, when we talk about the trial system, I have them watch 20 minutes of a documentary called Hot Coffee that sort of does some myth busting about the civil just jury system and, you know, discusses some of the myths of that famous Hot Coffee McDonald's case. So I think the broad point here is um, I bring empirical research in, social science research in, in small increments and slices along the way of the course to make the course stick, to make the students realize that this stuff that they're learning, these rules that they're learning really matter, really impact who wins, and really impact people in different ways across race, class, and gender. I'd like to thank Francis Tung and the many researchers who are collaborating on this new Legal Realism project and for working to make this podcast happen. Visit NLR at www.newlegalrealism.org or on the blog at newlegalrealism.wordpress.com where new legal realists post on everything from law to the latest in jazz. You can also email us at newlegalrealism at gmail.com. This is April Faith Slaker with the New Legal Realism Project. Thanks for listening.